From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. You're listening to Nino Rota's score from the Fellini classic Amarcord. It puts us in the mood for our critics' journey through this week's new movies. They include the World War II drama The Painted Bird from Czech writer-director Vaclav Marhol. The life and writing of Flannery O'Connor is detailed in the documentary Flannery. Dateline Saigon describes the early years of the Vietnam War through the eyes of five print reporters who were there to tell the story. And the British romantic drama Carmilla is from writer-director Emily Harris. We'll also hear our critics' picks for some of the classics of television that are now streaming. Those and many more movies on Film Week right after NPR News. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. And we're joined this week by a trio of critics, Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com, Angie Hahn, who's film critic and deputy entertainment editor at Mashable, and Charles Solomon, film critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with the uh, drama from the Czech Republic, The Painted Bird. The film is written and directed by Václav Morol. Angie, what do you think of The Painted Bird? Uh, this is a film that is kind of difficult to talk about. Like, I can't say if I like it or dislike it because, well, I'll explain. It's a really harrowing war drama about a young boy trying to make his way home through the east, uh, through the Eastern European countryside around World War II. So an obvious comparison would be something like Ivan's Childhood. And this is, and The Painted Bird is all in black and white. It's nearly three hours long. All the dialogues in the inter-Slavic language. And if all that is not enough to tip you off that this isn't exactly going to be a mainstream crowd pleaser, it really sets the tone right away with this brutal opening scene of the protagonist watching a bunch of bullies uh, burn his pet ferret alive. And then it actually only somehow manages to get worse from there. So it's a, the st- structure is a little bit episodic. The, it follows the boy after his caretaker dies and he spends the rest of the film drifting from one temporary home or caretaker to the next. And, and along the way, he encounters just unspeakable horror and cruelty, extreme violence, sexual depravity, and of course, the war itself. Uh, but despite this episodic structure, the impact is cumulative. You see how each successive horror starts to really take its toll, take its toll on this kid and change him. And impressively, it's done with very little dialogue on the boy's part. He, it's a pretty quiet role, and I don't think it can be overstated. So I don't think it can be overstated how much of this film depends on actor Petra Kotlar reacting to things, just taking in all the stuff that's happening around him and trying to process it or, su- or suppress his feelings or express them. He's a passive character in a lot of ways because he is powerless, but Kotlar lets us know exactly what's going on inside. So it never feels like it's just a character where... 
things are just happening to him and nothing is happening from his end. Uh, there's also some really beautiful cinematography. It's crisp and clean. The black and white gives it this timeless feel of fable, like it's a movie that's always been with us and always will, which seems appropriate for a film that's very much about inhumanity and war and you know all these things that we've been dealing with for as long as humans have been a thing. It sounds, um, and it also, sorry, what? No, go right ahead. I'm sorry, Angie. Oh, I was going to say it also just emphasizes the contrast of the between the boy's innocence and the depravity of all the stuff going around him. But it's also very cold and unsparing. It's the Czech film, The Painted Bird, the bird that we're talking about set during World War II. Tim, this sounds like a very difficult film to watch. Oh, bleak and dispiriting uh, describes this cold and brutal black, black and white film. It is very episodic as we see what happens to him. Slightly manipulative, perhaps, this movie. He lives with his elder aunt uh, there who simply uh, goes into her room one night, sits in a chair and dies. It takes him a whole day to figure out she's dead. And then um, almost immediately, the house burns down. I'm like, okay. Okay, slightly manipulative, but okay. Uh, and then, and then we, we, we join him on his journey through all of these uh, deprivations that Angie just described uh, so wonderfully. And, and as we watch this, uh, we see him uh, become a more and more and more cynical young man. This, this, this all takes place over the period of about six months. Um, uh, from a Jersey, uh, a Jersey Kosinski novel, this is adapted. Uh, brutal. It, the film is very powerful, uh, except for a slight bit of ni- manipulation. I really, really like this film. Julian Sands shows up in this movie, too. And I thoroughly enjoyed that as well as Harvey Keitel. The film is The Painted Bird, a Czech movie starring Petra Kodlar. It's written and directed by Vaclav Marol. It's unrated and available widely on on-demand platforms. The uh, British-Australian co-production Dirt Music is a romantic crime drama starring Kelly MacDonald and Garrett Hetland. Gregor Jordan directs the screenplay adapted from Tim Winton's novel by Jack Thorne. Angie. Yeah, so this is a romantic drama about a woman who is in who's trapped in this unsatisfying relationship with a local power player, I guess he is, and but falls in, in this into this passion of romance with the tragic outcast played by Garrett Hedlund. So it's a, it's like half of a Nicholas Sparks movie and half of a wilderness adventure film along the lines of like, you know, Into the Wild or something like that, which could be an interesting combination, but because none of the core elements work, it just completely fell apart for me. Like this one lost me early on with the cute dog who was just this groaningly obvious metaphor for the protagonist and only got worse from there. All the lead characters are so underwritten that I always felt like I was trying to play catch up to figure out who they were or what they were doing or why it's very important to the plot that, you know, it's this world spanning, that it's this once in a lifetime romance because with romance films, for me at least, if you can if you can convince me that I really want these characters to be together, I will forgive so much nonsense. But this one just really didn't have that. And then in the second half, it turns into it takes a turn that uh, really relies on you buying into this and really relies on you being able to overlook a lot of contrivances. And I just didn't feel like it had earned it at that point. You never really understand what these characters even like about each other, other than that, that they're both sad and bored and horny. Um, I, I feel like she she spends more of her time going through his stuff than actually being with him. And he spends more of his time looking off into the distance, thinking about his tragic past. Uh, so, I mean, the second half of the movie is, is kind of weirdly a nature travelogue that actually does a great job of selling the coast of Western Australia. So if you're stuck in a tiny apartment <laughs> right now, like, I feel like this, this you'll watch appeal. this movie and be like, I would like to go to there. 
Um, and there's a lot of, you know, pretty shots of nature. There's a lot of pretty shots of Garrett Hedlund being shirtless, which he is frequently in this movie. And I feel like those things will be a reason enough for some people to check it out. But for me, if I, I felt like if this was a screensaver, I'd be like, great, what a pretty screensaver. As Dirt, a movie, it just left me completely cold. Dirt Music is the film. Uh, Tim, what do you think? There's a lot of brooding in this movie. Kelly McDonald was brooding over on happy relationship. Uh, the, the guy she's having the relationship, it's brooding over her being unhappy in the relationship. Garrett Hudlin, he, he's brooding too. And he's extremely aloof and sexy. Um, but eventually we find out that he's not so much brooding as he is mourning because of something very complicated that comes to us in flashback across the arc of the film. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I love Kelly McDonald, generally speaking. She's, she's lovely and she's a very, very good actress. Um, uh, Garrett, same same thing. You know, I, I like his presence there. But this movie kind of plays like a, I don't know, kind of like a romance novel, you know, that doesn't want to commit itself to being about what it's about, which is why we have all those pretty shots of that coastline uh, in the movie and all of this wilderness and stuff. You know, it's like it's, 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 it's a juxtaposition, I suppose. Uh, but mostly I think it's just a cop out. Dirt Music, the romantic drama directed by Gregor Jordan, starring Kelly McDonald and Garrett Edlund. It's unrated. It's available on demand from iTunes and Voodoo Dirt Music. The documentary Flannery explores the life and work of the writer Flannery O'Connor. It's directed by Mark Bosco and Elizabeth Kaufman. Tim? These filmmakers and the many notable people, including uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Mary Steenburgen, who reads much of Flannery's work in this movie, obviously admire both her and her work. Uh, I admire the nature of her writing, the language of the South, akin to Harper Lee, Truman Capote, Faulkner, and all of that. Uh, but I don't admire her. And Flannery O'Connor was a moralist and, 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 and pretty seriously racist. And none of these people seem to know that or care about that fact of her existence. Uh, they, they talk about it a little bit, but mostly they avoid it. No one, no one in this film reads the letters uh, of Flannery O'Connor. The letters were published in the, in the New Yorker back in 2014, where, where she writes some, you know, patently racist things. And it's interesting because if you've read Flannery O'Connor, you hear these racist things in, in much of her work, wise blood, uh, a good man is hard to find. You hear much of that racist stuff, but she puts that stuff in the mouths of characters. And it was always suggested that, you know, no, Flannery is not racist. She's simply reflecting the racism of that time in that period, honestly, as opposed to, say, Harper Lee, who didn't do that much uh, in, in her writing, at least until Go Set a Watchman. So these people don't seem to know the nature of Flannery O'Connor, and they don't, didn't seem to want to put the complete nature of Flannery O'Connor in this documentary, and I think that's a fail. Flannery is the film. Charles? Uh, well, Tim liked it better than I did. I... <laughs> Two big that's problems. Funny. The first is that the filmmaking is very simple-minded. If she's go they're going to say she was writing something, you hear a manual typewriter sound effect and see pictures of typewriter keys. Okay, maybe once, but as a recurring motif. But as, as Tim was saying, you watch her friends and relatives and admirers basically tying themselves in knots trying to excuse her really loathsome behavior. She was kicked out of the Yaddo writer's colony because she uh, was red-baiting one of the other participants. And they sort of laughed this off. Oh, well, she had a crush on the guy who was doing that. And this is a woman who would write in her letters, I am a segregationist by taste, and they just don't deal with it. And you wonder what, say, a writer as 
eminent as Hilton Alls uh, is doing in this dreary thing. And again, she just comes across as loathsome and the people don't deal with it. Flannery, a documentary about the writer Flannery O'Connor, directed by Mark Bosco and Elizabeth Kaufman. And you two are going to have to duel it out as to which of you liked the movie more, quote unquote. Uh, The film is unrated at Lemley's Virtual Cinema. Father, Soldier, Son, a documentary directed by Leslie Davis and uh, Katrin Einhorn. Uh, It follows a military family over the course of 10 years. Tim? Yeah, it begins in 2010 when the the, the Sergeant Sergeant First Class Brian Esch leaves his very young sons uh, with their uncle, his brother, as he heads off to war. His wife has passed away. The New York Times more or less embeds themselves with him for the next decade. Uh, all that happens is deeply dramatic um, and, and, and real. Um, some, of it, um, some of it expected. He's wounded uh, in the war. This is expected. What comes out of that is not expected. And then more things as, as we work our way through the, through the rest of the 10 years. Some of it, quite frankly, devastating, um, obviously, to the family, but possibly to, to, to we who watched this film as too. I was deeply moved by much that happened in this family. You don't expect it. They couldn't have expected it. Nobody knew uh, that these things would happen. Uh, but you, we know these children of his, and we see them talk about their dad, and we hear him mostly in voiceover talking about his family, uh, the woman who will ultimately become his wife. Uh, and then, like I said, some extremely devastating things happen, and uh, they hurt. Father, soldier, son. Charles? Well, um, I agree with Tim on this one. I think you're dealing with a man who is uh, in many ways admirable, if stern. Uh, But what bothered me about this film is, one, I think it rambles a bit. And two, it seems to me inappropriate to be interviewing a seven-year-old boy about saying goodbye to his father who's going off to war for six months and who who doesn't know if he'll see him again or to be intruding on his reunion when he hasn't seen his father uh, after all those months. And so I'm really, I found that rather uncomfortable as well as, again, as as Tim mentioned, some of uh, the traumas that this family undergoes. It feels intrusive to me, but you do get a portrait of this man struggling to recover from uh, what happened to him during the war in Afghanistan. We're talking about the documentary streaming on Netflix, Father, Soldier, Son, Angie. Yeah, so like all the footage is of this family, all the talking head interviews are about them. There's no other experts or commentators weighing in and no like charts or history lessons to give you context, which I think is good and bad. It, it does what the movie seems to be trying to do, which is really just get you into the lives of these family to understand as close as you can what it's like to walk around their shoes. But you do kind of, but it does... Uh, it, it does make you kind of wonder what's been cropped out of the frame, I guess, a little bit, because because the because you start to wonder, like, what are, you know, one thing it avoids, for example, is what their political beliefs are, which, you know, seems kind of 
like, I understand why maybe they didn't want to go there, but it seems a little bit odd to have a movie about the military that seems to kind of dance around that. Um, it, it's also because of the way it's shot and because of how these people are, which is that they are frank, but not necessarily introspective. It kind of dances around a lot of the topics like masculinity and patriotism rather than confront them head on. So it's an interesting watch. You really, it's, if you like to kind of get a perspective on what it would be like to lead someone's life, someone else's life, it's really interesting. I don't necessarily know what I was supposed to do with it after. Father's Soldier's Son, Netflix streaming documentary from filmmakers Leslie Davis and Katrin Einhorn. It's rated R. Coming up, we'll hear what our critics have to say about the documentary Dateline Saigon. Got a romantic comedy this week starring Lucy Hale, Jackie Cruz, and Mindy Cohn, A Nice Girl Like You. And we'll talk about the horror thriller Ghosts of War as well. Those and many more films coming up, as well as our critics' pick for television series and for classics available to stream or on demand. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. We're joined this week by critics Charles Solomon, Angie Han, and Tim Cogshell. Our next film up is one available on demand. Dateline Saigon uh, reconstructs the Vietnam War, particularly the early years, through the eyes of five print reporters on assignment in Saigon. Thomas D. Herman is the director. Charles? Um, this is, I think, a very important film and a very timely one. Uh, the journalists read like a, a who's who. There's Peter Arnett, there's Neil Sheehan, there's David Halberstam. And these were young reporters then who were assigned to Saigon when things were just starting to heat up in the early 60s. And they were largely responsible for discovering that the war in Vietnam was intensifying, that the, you know, the United States was committing military personnel to them at a time when they were saying they weren't, that the American public was being lied to, and that the situation was rapidly worsening. And at a time when Trump has tried to delegitimize the media and journalism and cast them as an enemy, I think this film serves as a very important reminder that it is journalists who function as the eyes and ears of the people of the United States and indeed the world and who are required to tell, tr- bring truth to their readers and to bring it to, uh, to power. And so it's a very uh, powerful film. And as I say, one that I think is extremely timely. Dateline Saigon, a documentary. It's unrated, available on demand on iTunes and Amazon Prime. A Nice Girl Like You, romantic comedy, directed by uh, Chris and Nick Rydell, who were brothers Lucy Hale, Jackie Cruz, and Mindy Cohn star Tim. Well, this movie's just light as a feather, just a poof of a movie it is. Uh, but that's okay, because it's kind of funny and cute. So so we have Lucy Hale, who um, has a moment with her boyfriend, and they break up because he decides she's just too inhibited. Mostly he's talking about sexually. She puts together this to-do list of things, which mostly involves buying way more sex toys and watching way more porn. Uh, and there are a lot of funny jokes about all of that in this movie, which is just as cute and fluffy as anything ever has been. Um, Lucy Hale is wonderful, but the really wonderful Mindy Cohen 
is in this movie, Natalie from The Facts of Life. Uh, and she's just hysterical in this movie. I don't know how she caught up with me in age, but that's that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, so, you know, between between that and all of the porn jokes and sex toys, this little movie will entertain you for about 85 minutes. <laughs> nice Girl Like You is rated R. It's on demand on multiple platforms, romantic comedy. Ghosts of War, a horror thriller written and directed by Eric Bress. It stars Brenton Thwaites and Alan Richson. Angie. Yeah, so this uh, movie follows five American soldiers who are assigned to guard a chateau in Nazi-occupied France, but quickly discover that it's haunted by something, the sins of the past or whatever. And for a lot of Ghosts of War, it is a perfectly fine haunted house movie. It's not reinventing the wheel, but the cast is doing a lot to make these archetypal characters feel lived in. Uh, I particularly thought Kyle Gellner was adding a lot of creepiness as a soldier who just doesn't seem quite right, even if you don't can't quite put your finger on why. And the house is, you know, appropriately old and creepy with a lot of nooks and crannies where shadows might lurk or jump out at you or something like that. And because the characters spend so much time patrolling them, you get a decent sense of the layout. There's some solid scares. You know, it's fine. Uh, If that were all Ghosts of War wanted to be, I'd say this is a totally acceptable pick if your standards are not super high and you just want to watch some actors you kind of like hang out in a haunted house for a while. You might wonder why it takes place in World War II, but it's not the worst thing to have a slightly unusual setting. But then Ghosts of War does this has this like M. Night Shyamalan-level twist that tries to recontextualize the whole story, and you realize that it's actually trying to say something deeper about war and evil and the responsibility of good people to act. And that's where it just completely fell apart. I think it thinks that it's imparting some profound lesson, but I walked away from it only like 50% sure what it was trying to say or what, it was, what was really happening. And the only satisfaction I felt at the end of the movie was, thank God it's over. Uh, the film is Ghosts of War, Tim. Uh, you know, interesting that this had the reverse effect on me. So horror movie, yes. War movie, yes. Uh, the genre that they leave off is sci-fi. It's a sci-fi movie, too. And as I'm watching the horror movie and the war movie, and I really appreciated the, the war movie because it begins really intensely uh, in, in this, with this battle sequence before they get to that chateau. And it's, this, is, this is a nice war movie making. And then they get into that chateau, and fairly, fairly soon uh, they start to figure out something wacky is going on there. And then there's that twist that Angie is talking about. And I got to tell you, the twist was the thing that made the movie for me. When the twist happened, I thought to myself, oh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I didn't see that coming at all. Everything else I saw coming, but I didn't see that twist. So there you go. Uh, one man's twist is another. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Ghosts of War. Did either of you see the Michael Mann film from 1993, The Keep, which was uh, oh, yeah. a supernatural? Does, does this bear any uh, similarities with that, Tim? Mm, I, I suppose in the horror portion of the film, but the twist, the twist is a thing of its own. Okay. All right. Ghosts of War, rated R. You can see it on uh, multiple uh, video-on-demand platforms. Eric Bress, the writer-director. The documentary Animation Outlaws tells the story of Spike and Mike. You might have heard from their animation festival, which carried their names for many years. Uh, the film is directed by Cat Alyoshin. Charles, what do you think of Animation Outlaws? Well, these were two guys from Riverside who kind of stumbled into distributing animated shorts. And in their films, they really premiered or brought to you know, Americans' attention some wonderful and amazing films. 
Nick Park's Creature Comforts, Frederick Bach's Crack, Joan Gratz's Mona Lisa Descending a Staircase, uh, Alison Snowden and David Fine's um, uh, Bob's Birthday. Uh, they paid to have the student films of artists, including Pete Docter and Andrew Stanton, colored and showed them. And uh, all of these filmmakers, well, not Frederick, but most of the filmmakers turn up talking about uh, what an, you know, how important this was. Full disclosure, I had to review all those festivals. Not all of the films were at that level, and things got a little tense when I didn't like some of them, <laughs> including a couple of filmmakers who were in this. Um, it's interesting, but I think a little repetitious and long. Uh, it's more fun. It's fun just seeing these clips and the filmmakers, though. And the festivals are no more. Is that right? Um, I don't think so. I haven't seen anything on one in a long time because uh, there are so many with cable. There are so many other means of distribution now and with apps. For example, there's the National Film Board app. So films like uh, uh, Bob's Birthday and the work of Trollkova and Carolyn Leaf. Uh, you can now just just go to. And then when that started drying up, they did more and more of the sick and twisted. But I suspect most of those people are going to TikTok or YouTube, uh, you know, or other places to show their work. I haven't again, I haven't seen any any festival from them. I haven't either. Time. Yeah. Animation Outlaws, the documentary from director Kat Alyoshin. It's unrated on multiple on-demand platforms. Easy Does It, an adventure comedy starring Linda Hamilton, Brian Batt, and Ben Matheny. Will Addison directed and co-wrote it with Ben Matheny. Tim? Well, this is a Southern Gothic tale. It's absolutely absurd, uh, but kind of wonderfully so. When it's not being flat out goofy, it manages to pull off uh, bits of poignancy and even a little melancholy every now and again. It's out of Louisiana, as are all these filmmakers, are all Louisiana people. Uh, Harry Shearer shows up as a voice on the radio. He's a Louisiana guy. John Goodman, too, another uh, Louisiana guy. And you have these two knucklehead dishwashers who occasionally pull off a scam or two. One of them gets a postcard from his long-lost mother, and it says, if you're reading this, I'm dead. But I left you a treasure in Santa something, California. And this road trip ensues. Uh, problem is, there's this woman uh, called The King who's played by Linda Hamilton. She's on the poster. Just look at it with the braids and she's wearing this man's suit and she is just fearsome. She has this daughter named Blue who's like her like hit daughter, literally has this baseball bat that she goes around with pounding people silly. Uh, they owe her money, uh, but they're going to go on the run anyway. She sends Blue after them. This becomes this wacky road movie. They sort of accidentally kidnap this boy <laughs> that uh, they didn't really mean to kidnap, but he becomes uh, a part of the gang uh, as they go off to try to find this lost treasure. You know, I love Southern Gothic tales. I I love it. The wilder and nuttier they are, the better. The sort of Mark Twain-esque kind of thing. But when they when they can get to that melancholy, when they can say something that's really deeply moving, I like them all the more. And this one manages to pull that off. Tim, are they able, with the budget they have, to evoke the American South of the 70s? The other thing that I wanted to talk about regarding this film are particularly the set pieces because, yes, it's absolutely beautiful. They do a lot of stuff with color correction, but these uh, roadside uh, gas stations, uh, the the uh, the Stuckies, you know, Stuckies. Oh, are yeah, all I remember stuff. Stuckies. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just all of the, And it's set in the 1970s. So they, they, they not only managed to pull that off, but they managed to do it 
in era, in, in, in the period. And I just love it so much. It was just so, so funny. Sounds like one to see. Easy Does It, starring Linda Hamilton, Will Addison, the director and co-screenwriter. It's unrated, and it's available on demand on iTunes, Vudu, and Fandango Now. Carmilla, a British romantic drama written and directed by Emily Harris. Angie? Uh, so I really like this one. Carmilla is based on a vampire novella that actually predates Bram Stoker's Dracula by a few decades. And then in the movie version that we just saw, a sheltered teenage girl in 18th century England named Lara, played by Hannah Ray, becomes entranced by this mysterious girl named Carmilla, played by Devrim Lingnow, who comes to stay with her family after a nearby carriage accident. Um, I think I think that description, for a, lot, a large part of the movie, you might assume that it's headed in kind of a horror supernatural direction and there are elements of that but it's really more of a gothic romance in that way it kind of reminded me of Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak which is a very different movie but was also another one that was billed as a horror story and kind of had that atmosphere to it but incorporated those ghostly elements to tell a more grounded tale this film is just beautiful. You get these you get these wide shots of this pristine countryside. You get these extreme close-ups of flowers. The camera picks up every single stalk of grass and every single bit of dust. And of course, it, it uh, directs that same attention to the characters. So you see, you know, every breath that the characters take and every kind of twitch, which really which really gives it a, such an intimate feel, like the feeling that you have when you are sexually or romantically infatuated with someone and you just notice every single thing that they do, uh, which th- which goes a long way toward building the romance between these two girls as they kind of get closer and closer together. Um, and the connections that the movie makes between sexual desire and nature versus civilization and restraint actually reminded me a lot of um, the work of Luca Guadagnino, like I Am Love or Call Me By Your Name. Um, I do think Carmilla might feel a bit restrained for some. Carmilla herself remains a little bit at a distance because she's mysterious, so you don't get as much intensity from her end, and ultimately it's a pretty simple story. Um, And the ending might be a little bit of a letdown, but I thought that at 90 minutes it was just a delectable dose of beauty and sensuality. We're talking about the film written and directed by Emily Harris, Carmilla starring Hannah Ray and Devron Lingnow. Tim, Carmilla? beautiful I'm sorry, Larry. Beautiful and sensual, indeed, um, uh, Angie. Just, just really a just a saturated uh, movie, uh, dripping um, with passion. Um, um, uh, the, the the lesbian love affair is the thing uh, that's in the film, though. Yes, it's a vampire story, but the lesbian love affair is the thing, which was quite a thing. Uh, you know, 25 years before uh, uh, Stoker's Dracula came out, that novel, Joseph Thomas Sheridan Lafanu wrote these wonderful mystery novels, including this one. And for that to be inside um, of that novel at that period was quite the thing indeed. Uh, in this film, uh, it comes off just, just absolutely wonderfully. It does move very, very slowly. It feels longer than 90 minutes, frankly. Um, um, but, but nevertheless, um, um, it, it, it drags you along. It pulls you, I should say, along with it as you watch this story about these three women, really, because there's this um, uh, uh, woman uh, who is taking care of the 15-year-old girl who does not like Carmilla at all. She does not like the way this relationship is developing at all. And she sort of insinuates herself uh, into it. Very, very good stuff. I thoroughly enjoyed the adaptation by Emily Harris. Carmilla is unrated. You can see it on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. The French comedy MILF is directed by Axel Lafont. Tim? That these drop-dead beautiful French actresses are all 20 years younger than me, yet in the context of this movie considered older women. 
I, I find disturbing. Uh, that said, uh, one of these 40-year-old uh, French women is mourning the loss of her husband. The other one has this boyfriend. She's mostly just sort of avoiding the third. It's just sort of feeling her oats. Uh, she has a young daughter, uh, but she falls in love too easily. They have uh, these very, very hot affairs with these young men that they meet uh, at this resort. They're the, the, the one who's mourning her husband is thinking about selling the house down there. And it's the way these uh, affairs play out with these extremely young men, some of them just about Oh, just about young enough to be their sons is what this movie is about. It's kind of sweet and moving. I liked it a lot. Milf, a French comedy, Axel Lafont directing uh, the film. It's unrated and it's streaming on Netflix. Coming up, we'll hear our critics with some of their picks for things that you might not know to look for on your streaming service or available on demand. You're listening to Film Week here on KPCC and the KPCC app. Such a pleasure to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up in just a few minutes, we'll talk with John Horn, uh, who's going to be in conversation with the producer of Disney's upcoming live-action film, Mulan. That's whenever we get to see it. It's uh, been delayed in its theatrical release. That's coming up a little bit later with John. Uh, we're going to continue one uh, final new film to talk about this week before our critics' picks, The Sunlit Night, which is a German uh, romantic film. Jenny Slate stars. David Venent is the director. Angie, quickly, what do you think of The Sunlit Night? It could not feel more like that archetypal Sundance film if it tried. It's a quirky little indie drama about a young painter from New York, played by Jenny Slate, who takes a summer assignment in rural Norway and finds herself and finds some love along the way. And it's based on a book, and it really feels like it's based on a book. Like, it doesn't feel like they really managed to figure out how to translate the words into something that feels more cinematic. Everything from the plot to the characters are just paper thin it feels like it's been cobbled together from bits and pieces of other better movies there's all these quirky little characters and details in there that don't really serve any purpose and this is especially surprising because that director's last film wetlands had such an irrepressible personality i was really disappointed by how flat this one felt and that director david venant the sunlit night the film uh it's available on multiple on-demand platforms and unrated uh charles solomon want to ask you about uh some of your recommendations including the it crowd um which uh, ran for seven seasons. It's streaming on Netflix. Um, you share with us uh, what you appreciate about the series. Well, it's Richard Aowati and Chris O'Dowd as two nerds who basically run technology in this huge anonymous British company. And they play off each other beautifully, and then they have put over them a woman who's, who, I'm blanking on the actress's name, she knows nothing about technology but she has some social skills, which the two of them both lack. And a couple of the episodes, for example, when um, Aowati finds a site that lets him imitate a really masculine guy talking about um, football, what they call football, we would call soccer, uh, and they try and prove that, that, that they're as masculine as anybody. Uh, it's some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen on TV. Um, it's just so much fun and so silly. There's another time when um, 
Uh, Odell gives the woman a shoebox with a wire hanging out of it and tells her it's the Internet that they've taken down from Big Ben, where it's usually kept. <laughs> and A.O. Adi walks in and says, what's she doing with it? And he said, it's OK. I cleared it with Stephen Hawking's. And he replies, well, if it's OK with the hawk, it's OK with me. So, but Catherine Parkinson, by the way, is is the actor who who plays the uh, uh, the character who has no technical knowledge. Yes, and she and she's also wonderful. The three of them just play off each other so beautifully. The IT Crowd, a series that was in production up until 2013, and Charles, you've got a couple of 25th anniversary anime features to uh, direct people to. Yes, well, one of them is Mamoru Oshii's The Ghost in the Shell. This is the film that largely defines cyberpunk that feels almost prescient in the way it's uh, the web was affecting human behavior. And as humans become more technologized, they seem to be developing a collective consciousness. And there's a sea of information out there that the uh, main character, uh, the major Kusanagi, ultimately merges with. Um, it's again, uh, along with Akira and, uh, my neighbor Totoro, one of the films that really created a large audience for Japanese animation in this country. Um, it's dark, it's violent, uh, a lot of nudity, but it's very powerful filmmaking and a very important film. Available on Amazon Prime Video, Ghost in the Shell. Also from 1995, Whisper of the Heart. You have a couple quick lines on that. Yeah, if there's an, a Ghibli film that's underappreciated, it's this one that was uh, storyboarded and written by Miyazaki and directed by a young uh, director, Yoshifumi Kondo, whom he was kind of grooming. Uh, the main character, Shizuku, is a teenage girl. She's smart. She reads. She writes lyrics. She feels unfocused. And then she meets Seiji, who is determined to become a violin maker. And his dedication inspires her and spurs her to begin writing. And whereas the heroines in so many animated films, you know, find true love or beat up the villain, she finds her voice both literally and figuratively. Maybe she and Seiji will stay together. Maybe they won't, but she will become a writer. She's found her identity and her vocation. And this also has one of the best closing credits in the history of film. You see a street in the Tama Hills, the section of Tokyo where this takes place. And as <laughs> it's wonderfully improbable, a youth chorus sings, Take Me Home, Country Roads, in Japanese. You see all the characters going about uh, their daily routines. You know, the, the chubby cat goes trotting by, she's a Quinsage, go by on his bicycle, and then it's Sayonara, Country Road. Whisper of the Heart from 1995, also available on Amazon Prime Video. Tim, uh, you have uh, a couple, uh, one is a Netflix series that debuts on Netflix starting Wednesday, Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. What do you love about this? Yeah, so it's a three-part series. I've seen the first one. It's fantastic. First of all, I remember this era so vividly um, as, a, as a young person uh, watching uh, the, the, the news about the five crime families in New York. Uh, Banano, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and I forget what the other one was, and how rampant and violent they were. Killings on the streets and in restaurants. It's more or less the business of Goodfellas only in real life. And I just remember it all so vividly. This 
This theory is about how the FBI and other law enforcement agencies came up with the notion of using the RICO Act that already existed to go after these crime families and to bring the biggest mafia bosses down. This this period was insanely violent. I mean, violent in the way that uh, Chicago, South Chicago is violent now, violent in the way that L.A. was violent in the 90s, in the early 90s with the gangs uh, uh, when I first got here. But somehow we've forgotten how violent that was, and it happened on the streets of Manhattan. Fear City, New York versus the Mafia, debuting on Netflix Wednesday of this coming week. And you've become a fan of the HBO series Perry Mason? Oh, yeah. Perry Mason is starting to make sense. The rub on Perry Mason was, you know, why is this very good noir thriller called Perry Mason? You know, what what was the point of that? By episode four, I think we're up to five now, but by episode four, we begin to see why. We begin to see how this guy is going to become the guy that we remember from that 1950s television series uh, played by Raymond Burr. John Lithgow is just doing some of the best work of his career in this series, playing the lawyer who Perry Mason works for as a private detective. Della Street is in this series. I love the way they conceive that. And you can see how he and Della are going to have that situation that they have. Lily Taylor is doing fantastic work here. I love the characters that, that exist in this series. They're not actually characters from 1932 L.A. history, but they, uh, they are akin to them. So there's an Amy Simple McPherson type character played by uh, Tatiana Maslany, who is just fantastic in this series. And I love the production design. It's just the cinematography is great, but I just love the way it represents that 1932 L.A., the cars yeah. and angels flight. It's just all so, so wonderful and evocative. And I can see how we're going to get to Perry Mason. The HBO limited series Perry Mason, uh, Tim talking about. And Angie, um, quickly tell us about the Netflix animated Avatar, The Last Airbender. So it's actually not a Netflix show. It's a Nickelodeon Nickelodeon show that premiered, I think, in 2003 or somewhere around there, but just recently hit Netflix. And the reason that everyone's talking about it is it was very popular at the time, but I think it was kind of hard to access for a while. And now that it's on Netflix and everyone is looking for something to watch, everyone's watching it. And by everyone, I mean myself. And it's a fantasy um, that follows kind of the hero's journey, chosen one plotline, but it does it really well. It has a lot of those archetypal characters you're familiar with, but I think kind of elevates them to the next level. The animation is really beautiful and gets prettier and prettier as it goes on. And interestingly, it takes a lot of inspiration from uh, Asian cultures and Inuit culture and stuff like that, as opposed to Western fantasy, which I think is what we're more accustomed to. Avatar. That one a lot. Avatar, The Last Airbender, now streaming on Netflix. Coming up, we'll hear from John Horn, his interview with the producer of Disney's upcoming live-action film, Mulan, whenever we get a chance to see it when theaters reopen. More to come on Film Week. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm Larry Mantle. From time to time, we've been offering excerpts of the new LA Studios podcast, Hollywood the Sequel. Host John Horn explores how the film and TV industries are changing as a result of COVID-19 and the industry's efforts to be more representative. In the latest episode of Hollywood the Sequel, John talks with the producer of the upcoming Disney live-action film, Mulan. It's had its release delayed due to COVID-19. John asked Jason Reed about his reaction when he heard the news of the delay. 
On one hand, you've spent many years of intense effort trying to put this one project together, and you know that there are literally hundreds of people who gave their blood, sweat, and tears to make this movie. And every time you push or every time you don't have complete information for them, it's it's disappointing that they're not going to be able to share that with the audience or with their friends and their family. But at the same time, I think that we have a very special movie. I think that it's particularly designed for the theatrical experience, which I still think is an incredibly valuable experience for people to have. And we want to put it out when the biggest audience is going to get to see it in the way that it was designed to be watched. Now, obviously, going forward over time, more people will see it streaming, more people will watch it on their computers and their TVs and their wristwatches than we'll ever see in a movie theater. But I think that there's, um, in general, there's a real deep value for that first window. And I think for this movie, um, it would be a shame that if we put it out in a in a place where people didn't feel confident going to the movie theaters or where those theaters weren't open. But uh, we have great partners at the Walt Disney Company. If anybody knows what's going on, it's it's them. And I feel confident that together we'll make the right decisions about how to get the movie out in the best possible way. But that assumes, of course, that there will still be theaters that are open. I mean, AMC Entertainment, the world's biggest chain, has kind of been teetering on bankruptcy. They pushed back their opening. Cineworld, which owns Regal, pushed back their opening. So I think there's a legitimate question as to if and when Mulan is ready, if it's August, if it's September, if it's next spring. Like the whole theatrical landscape may look radically different than it does right now. Well, I think it's one of the reasons why it's important that the big studios have shown a commitment to providing material for that first window and and defending it. Although all of the models are changing, I think at the core, uh, the theater chains are a viable operation. They're an important cultural touchdown. And even though there's going to be, is it six months worth of continued disruption in their cash flow situation. I'm confident that those companies will come back, they'll rebound. Ultimately, I think the fact that they are slowing down and that they're being very thoughtful about their opening strategy as opposed to rushing to open to try to get the balance sheets in a different place is is a positive sign. It's not a short-term positive sign, but I think on the long term, they're building trust with their audience and they're... Um, I think that's really important that we don't want to rush out, get theaters open too quickly, put too many people in there and then have a backlash, maybe see uh, the health of employees impacted, the health of moviegoers impacted. And I think that, you know, okay, there's a short term gain and some revenue, but I think in the long term, we have as an industry, a relationship with the people that go to the movies and we go to the movies and our families go to the movies and we all love to do it. And I think that we have to make sure that we're doing it in a way that's safe for the employees and safe for the for the audience goers. And that will be the key to long term, long term stability in that sector. Then there are the complicated questions surrounding production and getting that started again. So I asked Jason Reed what he thought the biggest challenges will be. I think there's going to be when production starts, there's going to be a big problem of scheduling conflicts and figuring out who gets priority in what order. If your movie got pushed from, was supposed to start in March and is going to push to September, but you have conflicting crew and stage and location and actor agreements, how is that all going to get sorted out? I think that's going to be pretty messy uh, going forward. And then I think there's a, the other big, big problem is going to be figuring out insurance and indemnity. 
you know, if you make every reasonable attempt to prevent the spread of the disease, then you can get your insurance. I think the devil is in what the definition of reasonable is. And then it comes to the, you know, the practical physical production questions that we have to figure out. And like anything, you know, I think the movie industry is very adept at when it comes to production, thinking on their feet. So whether it's figuring out how to shoot at the top of a mountain or the bottom of the sea or uh, simulating, you know, Elon Musk going to make a movie in space with Tom Cruise, like there's a way to figure anything out. I think that it's going to be a process and we'll be figuring out best practices moving forward. I think the challenges of that, smaller crews, um, separating departments, temperature checks, things like that, those are all doable. I think that what we have to really think about, and this is something that we needed to have a conversation about before anyways, is the financial pressure to do less with more in terms of days. Running a crew 12 to 14 hours, six days a week is not really, wasn't a sustainable model before, and it's definitely not a sustainable model now. So how do we look at building schedules that are, have safety built into it and will allow us to implement some of these safety anti-pandemic programs without damaging the creative and financial responsibility of the movie. There's enormous pressure from companies to start generating money, get movies out there. But if you do it too early, you've really blown it. So how do you think that math is going to play out about the eagerness to get business restarted and the danger if you go too quick. Looking back at 1918 as a reference point, which I think is the only modern reference point we have, there were a lot of false starts. There was a lot of the stuff we're seeing now and it extended the length of the pandemic. That said, the world had just come out of a devastating war. It was hit with a devastating pandemic. 10 years later, the stock market was higher than it had ever been. And there was more wealth generated in that 10 years than at any point in the history of the United States. So we mismanaged that, obviously, in the Great Depression. But there is a resilience to the system and there is a resilience to the economy that I think we will see when we come out of this version, even if there are a number of false starts. I think the, the one of the things that we have to be really conscious is, and I think this pandemic exposed a deeper problem, is the fragility of the gig economy. And I think in the film industry, that's particularly true. There weren't effective strategies to get money to people that rely on working job to job. It, the PAs that can't file for unemployment because they didn't have a job until the next job started. You know, we, we built a system, a labor protection system in this country that was based on the idea that you worked for one company and one company supplied your insurance and supplied all of these things, disability insurance, et cetera, et cetera, workers' compensation. Those were built for a different era. Those were built for systems that no longer exist. So how do we, going forward, rebuild structures in our economy that protect our workforce and make sure that when we need people to do stuff, that they're available and trained and healthy to do it. And because without the people that make things and without the people that make the money to then fuel the economy, there's nothing there. 
That's John Horn talking with Disney's Mulan producer Jason Reed from the latest episode of the podcast, Hollywood the Sequel. You can find wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit laist.com slash podcasts for more information on Hollywood the Sequel and the whole slate of podcasts from LAist Studios. That's laist.com slash podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us on Film Week. Have a wonderful weekend.